Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. My guest today is Dr. Kevin Boyd, a board-certified pediatric dentist practicing in Chicago. He's also an attending instructor in the Pediatric Dentistry Residency Training Program at Lurie Children's Hospital, where he also serves as a dental consultant to the Sleep Medicine Service. Additionally, he serves as a dental consultant to Lutheran General Hospital. He's a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Anthropology, conducting research in anthropology and orthodontics. Prior to completing his DDS degree from Loyola University's Chicago College of Dental Surgery in 1986, he obtained an advanced degree in human nutrition and dietetics from Michigan State University. He completed his postgraduate residency training in pediatric dentistry at the University of Iowa. We are also proud and honored to have Dr. Boyd as a member of the Children's Airway First Advisory Board. You can find out more about Dr. Boyd at dentistryforchildren.net. And now, here's my interview with Dr. Kevin Boyd. All right. Good morning, Dr. Boyd. Thanks so much for joining us on our podcast. Please call me Kevin. Uh, yeah, I have a, a doctor of dental surgery, but but I'm Kev. Uh, Dr. Kev to the little kids. I'm a kid's dentist. Then Kev it is. All right. So um, I, I want to start our conversation by uh, just jumping into, you've done a lot of research on the modern jaw, and I've heard you speak about Darwinian dentistry. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the differences in our jaws, our jaws versus our ancestors, uh, what caused it, and why this is important to our health. You know, it's interesting. Um, I borrowed that term, Darwinian dentistry, from Randy Nessie, who's a psychiatrist from the University of Michigan now in Arizona, and he has had, uh, he, he created George C. Williams, an evolutionary biologist in the 90s, uh, this, this whole area of um, evolutionary medicine. And mm -hmm. it, so he calls, you know, Darwinian medicine, and he wrote a book called Why We Get Sick. And I just was inspired by him and, and actually talked to him about creating a branch, if you will, or an offshoot and just call it evolutionary oral medicine that specifically uh, does the same thing in terms of teaching uh, students, pre-med and medical students and, and post-doc uh, post training residencies in, in all branches of medicine about um, evolutionary explanations for, for why we get sick, uh, the title of you know, Nessie's book. And well, why do mouths get sick? You know, why do we get cavities? Why do we get gum disease? Why do we have crooked teeth and, and poorly formed jaws? So that's kind of where that came from. Um, and I've since uh, learned things by looking at skulls, mainly from the, the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of uh, Anthropology and Archaeology, studying uh, with Mariana Evans, who is, uh, she was in the orthodontic department when I, uh, with her, uh, joined as a visiting scholar uh, at Penn, and, and we x-rayed with uh, cone beam, you know, three-dimensional scans in her 
her private practice, we would take skulls out of the museum very carefully with permission and x-ray them and then compare them, uh, the numbers that we use. It's called cephalometrics of how orthodontics, orthodontists and, and other dental practitioners who provide orthodontic services uh, to patients, um, it, it's, they use those as norms. Uh, well, the norms, the normative values for the lines and angles and how the, you know, the face should be shaped and the jaw should grow are based upon a bunch of Caucasians um, from Cleveland uh, area and in other places um, by a couple of guys, uh, Steiner and Downs and, and later a guy named uh, uh, the, the Bolton Brush Norms, it's called from Case Western. Um, okay. So we wanted to compare what we were getting on all of these people who died before the Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th century uh, and to come up with an anthropologically correct base for, for looking at skulls. So that's how it all started for me. Okay. Okay. And what did, what did you end up finding? I mean, there's obviously a vast difference, correct? Yeah. And, and it's not, Mariana Evans and I, you know, we, we've worked really hard and long eight, eight or nine years now we've been doing this and it, it's really informed the way we practice, but there's other people, uh, who've done this. Um, Jerry Rose uh, is, is a dental anthropologist at the University of Arkansas, where I am an, an adjunct uh, assistant professor there, uh, working in dental anthropology with some of the graduate students. And he's the one with Rick Robley, who's an orthodontist in Arkansas. They worked together and wrote a paper. And what they discovered is that our jaws in the last, you know, maybe a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. you know, that sounds like a long time, doesn't it? But considering- yeah, but it's really not. Well, it's really not. And what we call modern humans or anatomically modern humans have been around for at least 250,000 years. And, you know, in order to survive childhood, you had to have perfect jaws. The foundation for, you know, getting out of childhood uh, was, was you had to have that. So it's in our genome, um, but in the last couple hundred years, it's since the Industrial Revolution, jaws have gotten narrower, they've mm -hmm. gotten further back, retrusive, and they've gotten longer, okay? So our faces have gotten longer, our jaws have gotten narrower, and our faces have gone backwards. So we call that, you know, uh, retronathia. There's, there's three dimensions on how you look at a face. And, and one okay. is width or transverse. The other one is length, that's sagittal, front to back. And then the mm -hmm. other is height or vertical, okay? So that's kind of, we've confirmed that. That was a hypothesis that had been laid down uh, really in the 50s and 60s, first that I know of by uh, Dr. John uh, Mew, it, it, who's, who's an orthodontist in uh, England, who who went into the British Museum and looked at old Roman skulls and came up with what he called the orthotropic, which just means correct growth or optimal for health growth and, and, and optimal for aesthetics. Um, and he developed the, the first hypothesis and published on it. And I, 
I learned from him. I went to England a couple of times and stayed with him and, and went to his clinic. And uh, Bill Hang is, is another sort of apprentice, if you will, of John Mew, who's taken it and really um, provided lots of support for Mew's orthotropic hypothesis and, and also trained many, I'm a pediatric dentist, but many orthodontists and, and general dentists are, are um, educated by Mew and, and uh, Hank. Those, and that's, that's the big, the broadest space of people who are doing this. Are doing this. And then, so the industrial revolution, how specifically did that impact our jaws? What happened there that's causing everything to get smaller? Well, we think, um, and the hypothesis that, that we've laid out, speculation, if you will, is that it seems to coincide with women entering into the workforce, the, the um, textile mills and coal mines. And, you know, they, and, and what did that mean? Well, uh, an ancestral pattern of nursing and weaning uh, that went on you know, pretty much for our entire existence as anatomically modern humans, over 250,000 mm-hmm. years, was that uh, a baby, a newborn, was immediately breastfed on demand for up to 10 to 12 months of age, is maybe exclusively, but certainly the first six, eight months, all they had was breast milk or they died. Well, that helped mm-hmm. build, you know, what I say is um, a tongue, a baby's tongue starting in utero, really about 20 weeks, is responsible for building itself a home to live in for the rest of its life. And that's called the hard palate, the roof of the mouth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at about 20, 16 to 20 weeks of age, a, a baby will start chewing amniotic fluid with their gums and their tongue will be pressing up on the roof of their mouth and pushing their faces out. We've got, um, you know, pre-industrial specimens of fetuses that were stillborn in their jaws, mandibles, everything is forward. So this probably starts in the womb. You know, we, there's no way you can go back in time and prove that. But we, we as a proxy, we, we look at these uh, four or 500,000 year old fetuses that their, their jaws are both forward, the lower jaw. And mm-hmm. if you look at if you have kids and you look at an ultrasound of your own child when 18 to 22 weeks old, many children have chins that are way recessed. And, and that's something we're really interested that this, this problem could start in the womb. Um, when we think of an ancestral mother carrying a child, well, you know, she was hunting, she was gathering and she was mm-hmm. walking around, she was breathing through her nose or she wouldn't be alive. Uh, mm-hmm. And some of those, you know, we, we talk about nutrients, vitamins and minerals, and, you know, they were eating natural unprocessed food. That's all there was. And the placenta was delivering that to the baby. But the placenta was also delivering nasally inspired oxygen from the mother, which probably helped not just the long bones grow. I mean, you hear of uh, premature babies that, that they're short for their gestational age, their low birth weight, sometimes mm-hmm. term. None of that a baby just wouldn't survive if they weren't really well developed as a, uh, you know, during their gestation and fetal life. So oxygen um, is a nutrient. Uh, and, and that's the one that that's the really the only one that the mother has priority for the, the growing fetus 
gets all the vitamins and what's left over the mom gets, but not oxygen. And it's just the, the analogy I think is on an airplane when the flight attendant says, uh, you know, if you're traveling with a child in, in the event of loss of cabin pressure, put the mask on yourself first and then help your child because right. you, know, you pass out, you can't help your kid and you're both going to die. Right. So, um, and it's the same sort of thing that, that, and that's a speculation that Mariana and I um, have developed that, that we really think, uh, and there's a, there's a, a entity that you see in some of the obstetric gynecology journals called gestational apnea. It's like gestational diabetes or hypertension that, that a woman who's not sleeping and breathing well during pregnancy can really rob her baby of that vital nutrient oxygen that is required uh, for them, you know, to grow right in the womb. And then it continues once they're born. So then if I'm understanding this, the industrial revolution, there's kind of this perfect storm happening. So women going into the workforce means we're not breastfeeding like we were. So that jaw development exercise isn't happening in newborns. We're eating processed foods, so our nutrients are changing as well as everything is softer. And is that somehow also leading to that third trifecta of suddenly we're becoming mouth breathers instead of nasal breathers? Yeah, there, there, there's a there's a there's a lot to unpack there, but you've made yeah you've connected the dots, and I'm I'm impressed because um, it is that that you know women, I mean, if they weren't too exhausted when they got home from a 14 hour day in the textile mill, maybe they could, you know, do some breastfeeding, but, and that created the necessity of infant formulas and, and giving cow's milk. And now we know that cow's milk has maybe four uh, vital oligosaccharides. They're, they're sugars that, that stimulate the immune system. Human milk has maybe 200. Uh, so, but they, we had to substitute and that's, you know, the baby formulas, the purees, the slops. And, you know, a mom, if she, if the formula hadn't been invented yet and the mom wasn't there to breastfeed, they could hire a lactating woman from the village called a wet nurse that doesn't mm-hmm. have any commitment, uh, you know, biologically to, you know, to a baby that they're hired, you know, to, to nurse. So it, it's a combination of, you know, abandoning 250,000 years of what ancestral patterns of nursing and weaning, nursing on demand for about three years uh, or four years into, into the third or fourth year of life, on demand wow. breastfeeding continued, but exclusive breastfeeding usually was done by 10, 12 months. And then the kid was eating every solid that every adult was eating, or they didn't survive. When we were hunter gatherers, we had to move around, you know, maybe every two, three months. And if a, mm-hmm. if a baby needed to have their food finally chopped up and pureed, sorry, you know, we can't do that. Right. So there's a, they're, they're all hypotheses there, but there, there's lots of support for them in the anthropological literature on, on, you know, unfortunately, this isn't really in medical textbooks yet, in dental uh, textbooks, but it will be. It absolutely will be. It's time has come. Got it. Got it. So I, I, there's there's really two follow-up questions I, I want to make sure we cover. The first of which is, okay, so now we know 
you, we can prove we're not necessarily 100% sure why we have hypothesis, but we know the jaws are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So how is this impacting children? Where are you seeing this in the, the world of dentistry? Well, again, it's, you know, you just grow up and, and the food is processed and, you know, it doesn't require a lot mm-hmm. of effort of chewing and, right. you know, like it starts in early childhood. Well, it also, that means that the jaws, the upper jaw, when connected to the back of the upper jaw, uh, to the hard palate is the soft palate. And if the, if the upper jaw is, is too far back, that soft palate can be closer to the back of the airway where the adenoids are. It's a throat tonsil, right? And, and that can mm-hmm. make it difficult to breathe. Um, if the lower jaw is back, and, and if they're both back, well, that means the base of the tongue, which lives in the floor of the lower jaw, the mandible, that's close to the back of the throat, what we call the hypo or laryngeal pharynx. Pharynx just means throat. Um, and what will happen is it, they, they, the child will switch the natural mode of respiration, which is through the nose. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's really how we're designed, how mammals are designed to breathe. Um, and they'll gradually go to mouth breathing. Well, there's a guy named Christian Guimanon who from Stanford who really identified yeah. that children can get obstructive sleep apnea, not just adults in 1976, I believe it was. But his hypothesis was that the adenoid, that throat tonsil, it's a big bump mm-hmm. right behind your, your soft, hard palate, um, is that what happens is kids gradually start mouth breathing for a number of reasons. Well, when that happens, you get pathogens from the air coming in and, you know, the nasal sinuses, which, which when you breathe through your nose, you kill all that stuff and you warm and humidify the air. And, and you also release something called nitrogen oxide, which, you know, opens up uh, blood vessels and facilitates oxygen getting into the bloodstream and, you know, to the heart, to the brain. Well, mm-hmm. that gradually... Uh, as kids start to mouth breathe more and their jaws get further back, then the adenoids start to grow and that just exacerbates, makes it worse. And, you know, the, the general theory is that's accepted in, in most medical uh, textbooks is that, is that the enlarged throat tonsil adenoid is what causes the mouth breathing. And it's sort of like, you know, maybe, maybe not. And this is my hypothesis. So um, gradual nasal disuse is what he called it. And then, you know, the face will get long. In fact, that medical profession calls a kid with a long face, you know, and dark bags on the eyes, they call it an adenoid face. Adenoid face. Adenoid face. Long face syndrome. <clears throat> and that's all from mouth breathing, because as you, as you breathe, it impacts your face. It, it influences the way your face will develop. And, and your face is connected to what? Your airway. Now, we mm-hmm. say that the back of the face is the airway or the front of the airway is the face. So, you know, the position and shape of your face is sort of a proxy for, for what your, your motive, primary mode of respiration uh, is. It's not 100%, but it gives you an indication. Uh, there's things we can look at. So Okay. So then... It's impacting the way that children are breathing. And is it this 
new pattern of breathing, the mouth breathing, is that what's impacting their development physically and mentally? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, like I said, the, how often should you breathe through your mouth? And, you know, my colleague, uh, Karen, uh, in, in Grand Rapids uh, says, uh, as often as you eat with your nose, okay? So <laughs> you're not, you don't eat with your nose unless you're tube fed in, in a hospital or, but no, you know, nose breathing, your tongue should always be in the roof of your mouth, except when, when you're eating, you know, and our ancestors used to eat and chew all day long. So the tongue spent a lot mm-hmm. of time in the lower jaw developing it along when they weren't eating, that, you know, talking and forming consonants and click sounds, our, our, our ancestors in Africa talked with clicks. And if they couldn't do that, you know, they died. It's a survival mechanism. Uh, right. So chewing and, and, and breathing through the nose, they, they develop both jaws, and, uh, but, but the tongue at rest should never be anywhere but in the roof of the mouth. So how does breathing through your mouth, though, impact, just so people understand, how does that impact your, your brain and, your, and a child's brain development? Well, the, the same thing is that you have to breathe in a lot more air when you're doing it through your mouth to get it, you know, sufficient quantity, 100 milligrams percent to your brain. You know, you have to, you have to breathe, over-breathe or breathe faster, take in more volume of it which coincides with systemic inflammation. Uh, Nose breathing, again, the most powerful antioxidant on the planet is nitrogen oxide. And, you know, that's in the lining of your sinuses. So when you breathe Mm -hmm. through your nose, you've heard of something called turbinates. Mm -hmm. Turbine is the root word, like like in a jet engine. It it causes turbulation of the air, which is a catalyst. It sparks the release and formation of nitrogen oxide in the sinus lining. Uh, it's uh, L-arginine is, is a amino acid that is released and turned into pre-nitric uh, oxide synthase, which makes this and it kills, it's an antioxidant, it's an antimicrobial. And, and then plus from nasally inspired air, it warms it to your body temperature. The ambient air is maybe 70 degrees, uh, unless you're in a rainforest. And, and it's not humidified. I mean, our bodies are like three quarters water. Well, the mm-hmm. dry, cold, dirty air gets warmed, humidified, chemically filtered, and mechanically filtered. So that delivers much more efficiently oxygen first to the heart in the hepatic portal system. We call it, you know, it's, it's cleaned by the liver and then it goes to the heart and it goes to the brain and you're getting you know, this beautiful, um, efficient delivery of oxygen that, that you know, and, and it can impact the way a brain grows, even, you know, uh, gray matter. Uh, Dr. Gozal and his wife uh, have, have published on this, is that, you know, the uh, cortex of, of the brain is affected by, by mouth breathing versus nose breathing. Um, and behavior, attention, intelligence can knock uh, points of IQ off some kids if they're, if they're, mm. you know, mouth breathers, habitual mouth breathers and, you know, have, don't cycle normally through the stages of sleep. So that, that's the whole neurological connection there to breathing.
You are listening to Airway First with today's guest, Dr. Kevin Boyd. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to ensure that every child has access to screening, evaluation, and treatment of all children's airway and sleep disorders before the age of six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. You can also find a ton of great resources for parents on our website, including videos, blogs, recommended books, comprehensive medical research, and more. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, back to my interview with Dr. Kevin Boyd. Yeah, and and you touched on behavioral impact, and I and I like to talk about that a little bit. You introduced us at CAF to the Dunedin study, yes, um, which I thought was incredibly fascinating. So, would you mind explaining a little bit of that to our listeners? The nineteen seventy toward the end of nineteen seventy three and early nineteen seventy four, every baby that was born at the central hospital in Dunedin, New Zealand, 1,037 of them were, they had funding for like a four or five year study where they would follow them and do metrics on them and you know, measure mm-hmm. their height and their weight. And um, their, believe it or not, you know, their dental health, their sleep um, and the agility, um, APGAR scores you may have heard of, but that's, you know, neurologic. Mm-hmm a kid's born, but they, it, it's kind of like that. And they, they would, you know, do this periodically over three or four years. Well, um, what they, it was going so well that they, they got more funding to continue it. Even our national Institute of health in America invested in this. And oh, wow. now over a thousand of these babies are still participating. They're in their fifties uh, 60s, if you will. I don't know, do it from 73 to the 50. They're in their 50s. But what they found is just incredible. I told you they took dental data. Well, they were looking for cavities and gum disease. And then all okay. oh, the orthodontists looked at them at 12. So there, there wasn't really anything about the dental facial development that goes in here, but there was sleep. And one of the things that they found is that children, before the age of 11, if they demonstrated self-control, impulse control, mm-hmm. uh, and they, they had metrics, validated metrics to, to, to gauge this, they, in their 30s and 40s, looked 10 years younger. And, you know, I'm going to show, um, you know, maybe just one slide, not to you today, but of where they'd done composites of these uh, babies that demonstrate, you know, the, the marshmallow test, you, you've heard of that mm-hmm. or they mm-hmm. oh, yeah. like that kids, kids who really could do that. And they, they didn't do the marshmallow test. They had other ways of, of, you know, estimating a child's self-control in, in the seventies and eighties. But these people, they found uh, in this, you know, if you just Google Dunedin study in self-control, what you mm-hmm. will find is amazing is they not only look younger, but they were resistant to systemic illnesses like cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes and obesity, um, wealth management, 
uh, attaining educational level, um, criminal and addictive behavior, almost non-existent in these kids who exhibited self-control before the age of 11 and sleep was one of the things that they measure. So I am like so excited about this and to, to be able to, you know, talk to parents and, and introduce something called health span. Everyone knows life lifespan or life mm-hmm. expectancy from birth, right? Well, now it's, mm-hmm. in, I don't know, 78, 79. It's gone down a few because of the pandemic. But, um, but how long do you stay healthy into your extended lifespan? And the conjecture and, and the, the, uh, what we're projecting from the data from the Dunedin study is, is that having this ability of self-control before the age of 11 not only projects optimistically for an increased life expectancy, many of these kids will probably, according to some of the investigators on this, on this trial, will live to be 100 years old and they will stay healthy into their extended lifespan. I mean, wouldn't that be the greatest? That's wild. 95 get sick one day and drop dead, you know, and, and be able to be healthy in your old age. That's health span. We've got to get that point across. And I think that's really what CAF, my contribution is going to be to really try to uh, raise awareness about the possibilities of not just building beautiful faces and, and you know, but, but the whole thing, if a, if a child can nose breathe as early in life as possible habitually, I think it's reasonable to to be optimistic that they're going to have a better quality of life immediately and Mm -hmm. an extended, you know, lifespan and health span, quality of life all the way through. Um, Anyway, that's the goal. That's wild. I love this study. Yeah. And and I'll make sure to include a link in our show notes as well so people can can check it out because it really is. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So. When we're talking about smaller jaws and children, um, at least in my conversations, at some point, retractive braces pop up because now, you know, over the last year, we've heard a lot about retractive braces and why that can be dangerous for children with undiagnosed airway disorders. So I'd like to chat a little bit about that and, and get your insight on that. You know, really, first of all, just explain to parents what that is and why that's dangerous, what they should be looking for. Well, the, the, you know, right away, people use interchangeably um, braces as, and orthodontia, you know, mm-hmm. orthodontic treatment. And, and it's really the, the American Association of Orthodontists changed the name of their uh, journal from the, you know, American Journal of Orthodontics to the American Journal of Orthodontics and dental facial orthopedics. Now, dental facial orthopedics, that implies that the airway is gonna be involved because what's the face connected to in the jaws? The respiratory system. I mean, also the auditory, mm-hmm. visual, olfactory system. There's, there's all these survival mechanisms. But you know, if, if you change in, in you know, straighten teeth, well, braces implies permanent teeth. You don't put braces on baby teeth. Right. Mm-hmm. So the right. orthodontics doesn't start till there's permanent teeth. Well, usually by eight years old, a kid will have 12 permanent teeth. And then, oh, an orthodontist can be really aggressive and, oh, really proactive and start treating at eight. Well, 
I call eight years old a geriatric patient in my practice. You can begin optimizing the craniofacial connected to the respiratory complex. Um, Mike Mew calls that craniofacial dystrophy, um, but I like to get the respiratory aspect into that. So I call it uh, the craniofacial respiratory complex. You can start optimizing not only the form, but the function of those interconnected survival mechanisms, uh, the craniofacial complex and the respiratory complex, you can start optimizing the hard and soft tissues, hard being bone, soft being muscles and vasculature and fascia, all these, these, these other tissues. You can start optimizing them. Are you ready for this? Like yes. At birth. I mean, nursing. What? Breastfeeding is, is a dentofacial orthopedic appliance. It starts helping the, you know, the tongue. If you watch a video that, that by Donna Geddes, who G-E-D-D-E-S in Australia at Perth, she did ultrasounds of babies breastfeeding and showed how the tongue, the baby's tongue will push against the mother's nipple up into the sutures. You know, the fontanelles on the baby's head, the soft spots, those are all over mm -hmm. your face and all over your jaws. And the baby's tongue will push the nipple and create a vacuum and push forward. And all these palatal facial sutural complex, I call it, or fontanelle complex, they all start developing. First in utero, like I said, with, with the action of, of, you know, chewing amniotic fluid. But then when they're born and they start uh, nursing, and if, if, a, if a mom can't nurse, um, cup feeding is better than giving an artificial nipple unless it's to save the kid's life. But preemies can even cup feed. They do that in some nurseries. There's, there's studies on that. But um, oh, wow. introducing something called baby led weaning, but, but you know, not overly commercially processed foods, but um, stuff that kids can chew on. They can chew a pork chop at six, eight months of old age. If they can sit up, they can baby lead wean. Well, all those things start dental facial orthopedic development. Okay. Well, then when the child has 20 teeth and even, you know, before that, but usually by two and a half, uh, 24, 28 months of age, a child will have 20 teeth. Well, Journal okay. of the American Medical Association, December 1922. Uh, an article by Cohen talks about how 24, uh, I'm sorry, 30 to 32 months of age is the ideal time to start palatal expansion in a child for respiratory advantage, not for straightening teeth, for respiratory advantage. Wow. 1922. I'm, 1922. And I'll send a link to that article um, I'll, or you can download it and anybody can. Yeah, read. we'll definitely it, put it in the show notes. It's not random controlled trials. These are, you know, you, you didn't have evidence-based medicine until after World War II. Uh, they were observational trials, like Einstein. You know, he didn't, mm -hmm. he, he discovered relativity not by doing a random controlled trial. It was a thought experiment. He was riding his bike in, in the turn of the last century and imagined himself overcoming the headlight beam on his bicycle. And he would turn into energy. That's how he came up with e equals MC squared. It's an observational study, um, you know, scurvy, vitamin C, all those things were uh, uh, cholera as being a waterborne rather than an airborne disease. Um, a book called uh, The Ghost Map, excellent by Stephen Johnson, talks about all that. But, you know, 
these are observation and the, the, the 1922 JAMA article talks, um, it's, it's not based on controlled observational studies. Came up with that. <clears throat> okay. So then with regard to braces, I mean, obviously they have their place, right? There, there are benefits for straighter yeah. teeth. Um, you know, as, as a parent, I go in with my 11 year old, the, the geriatric child, um, which I love that. So I go in and I, I, I'm told that there's not enough room in my child's mouth and we have to remove all these teeth and we're going to do braces as, you know, as a parent, is there something I should ask? Should I be concerned? Do I how, how, do, how, how do I know that that's going to be okay for my child not to do more damage if they have an undiagnosed airway issue? Well, most, most orthodontists don't really consider the airway complex as being all that intimately related, you know, to the craniofacial complex. So that, that's something, and it's not their fault. It's the curriculum. The curriculum does not teach anything really about it now it's starting to maybe um orthodontists are also not taught anything about child development behavior guidance anxiety control i'm a pediatric dentist are you kidding that's my, that's how i make my my existence worthwhile how i stay pertinent to the profession is i know how to understand a child's fears, anxieties, curiosities. Most of them are just curious and they're, they're mm -hmm. maybe threatened by a novel clinical setting. Well, I'd, I had to demonstrate extreme competence in that before I could get board certified in, in pediatric dentistry. And at the University of Iowa, you don't get a certificate unless you're competent in managing anxiety of children and their parents. They don't learn that in orthodontic school because it's implied you're not going to need those skills because you're not going to see them mostly till they're about nine, 10 or 11 at the soonest. They say, you know, do the first visit by age seven, but that doesn't mean start treating by age seven. Um, more on that later, but I, I'm the just- The first orthodontics visit by age seven is what you're saying? They're, they're, yeah, the, the AAO, American Association of Orthodontists has a pamphlet that they renew every couple of years. And it just says first orthodontic visit evaluation should be no later than age seven, but it says in the same brochure, but most treatment won't begin, you know, till they're somewhere between nine and 11. And, and, you know, to me, so, so I, 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 in answer to your question, like, well, you know, if they say the teeth don't fit and, you know, we, how do I make them fit? Well, you know, what, what if you go to a shoe store and you were a size, I wear a size eight and they bring out a size six. And it's like, well, um, you really like these shoes, Dr. Kev. Um, we're going to have to cut off some of your toes, uh, but they'll fit. And you'll have them. And it's like, that, that's ridiculous, right? Or right. Even, even for a third-year dental student, depending on where they train, he can look at a kid with no space, you know, a three-year-old, four-year-old with no space between their teeth. And they'll say, you know, save up your money for braces. And, and that's like an endocrinologist or a pediatrician telling the parents of a kid with high blood sugar, save up your money for an insulin pump, because guess what? Your kid is going to be a brittle diabetic and maybe, or, or an ophthalmologist telling the parents of a nearsighted four-year-old, save up your money for glasses. 
you know, you don't, you don't want to do it now. It's too early. Wait till they're driving a car. Then you'll save a lot of money and you only have one prescription, right? right. That is a sound analogy. That's medically defensible. What I just told you about myopia anyway, you know, the, the diabetes thing is a little extreme, but, but myopia nearsightedness that can cause the same neurological issues as mouth breathing. It, it, you know, a, a kid can be psychologically damaged because they can't see and, you know, the behavioral issues, even cognitive issues. Are you kidding? They can't learn if, if they're not seeing it used to be the chalkboard uh, or they, you know, right. so anyway, I, I digress, but that that's kind of um, the 11 year old, you know, you can't go back in time, but no, don't you, you want your kid to have in three dimensions. You want them to be wide enough so their tongue will fit. You want them to be forward enough so their tongue will fit. And you don't want them to be deficient in vertical, like deep overbite or excessive, like long face. All right. You want all three dimensions to be optimized. It's harder to do in an 11 year old, but you can, you know, you can prevent things from getting worse. Uh, but if you take out teeth and then you put them in headgear that pulls things back and everything, you're going to take a suboptimal situation and you're going to make it worse um, by doing retractive uh, orthodontic procedures, dental facial orthopedic procedure procedures. So would this be a good opportunity then as a parent, if, you know, this is what you're presented with and you suspect, you know, you, you, you've done some of the things we've talked about in previous podcasts, watch your child sleep. So, you know, they're a mouth breather. You figured out they have sleep apnea because they're snoring. Would this be the right time then to say, you know what, before we go down this path, I'm going to take my child to an ENT or an airway centric dentist. Before yeah, I would do anything. Yeah, first of all, um, snoring doesn't mean a diagnosis of apnea. It's, it's sleep disordered breathing. We call that apnea. Snoring is, you know, sort of on one end of the spectrum, and in stage is apnea, and that has to be diagnosed with an overnight polysomnograph or a sleep study. Um, okay. And and I don't even I don't make direct referrals, even though I can. I'm on staff at. at a tertiary care children's hospital, but I, I always go through the primary care physician, which is the pediatrician okay. is a, mm -hmm. you know, I do work with, with the sleep medicine service at Lurie. And I, I know a lot of the ENTs, but who would you, is there anybody you like referring to because our mutual patient and you're the primary care physician, I'm the primary care dentist or, you know, somebody else's and they referred to me. I want to introduce that into the lexicon too. PCP is primary care physician. Everybody knows that. But right. how about PCD, primary care dentist? Because many of us, I'm a pediatric dentist and I can do all phases of dentistry for kids, but I've really just narrowed my focus to uh, dental facial orthopedics on kids and the primary dentition. That's just because nobody else really wants to do it or isn't yet doing it as much. So I call the referring pediatric dentist or, or the family dentist, general dentist, I call them PCDs, primary care dentists. And okay. just so, you know, you as a mom, yes, you, you want to talk to your pediatrician, but you might be the one 
that's going to, you know, say, look, would you please look at this? There's a flyer from the American Dental Association and I'll send uh-huh. it to you and we hang up. But everybody, everybody, you can just, I give it to parents and you can give it to your pediatrician, give it to your primary care dentist. I'm on a task force at the American Dental Association, uh, the Pediatric Airway Task Force, Airway Health Task Force, started by Stephen Carsonson. And we're coming up with our own screening uh you know, tools for, for uh, dentists and, and, and physicians to use in addition to the pediatric sleep questionnaire. Um, but it's written in very plain English. And mm-hmm. you could be the one that could change the course of that dentist career. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea. You know, I didn't learn any of this stuff in, in dental school. Uh, I didn't learn it even in my pediatric dentistry training. And I went to one of the best programs in the world at the time, University of Iowa in the late 80s. And I I learned that retronathic chins at four years old are always going to be retronathic. Sam Bashara, famous orthodontist, taught us that, but he didn't really say anything about breathing. He just said, look, Hmm. once a class two, always a class two. You know, he's the one who taught that. And it's true. It's, It's defensible. Is that, you know, jaws are too narrow, maxillary transfer sufficiency, with or without a crossbite, cannot self-correct. It cannot self-correct. It will persist. It will usually worsen and either is or will become a comorbidity, we say, with sleep and breathing disorders. So width, height, and length all need to be optimized in early as early in life as possible to assure a child has the best chance to be a habitual nose breather as soon in their life as, as is feasible to do so. I mean, you know, if I meet a kid at 12, that's the earliest feasible time I can try to optimize it. But as a pediatric dentist, I'm seeing them before they're age one. I'm even looking at really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. All children should have their first dental visit by age one. The, you know, American Association of Orthodontists, they should have their first orthodontic evaluation by age seven. You know, so, no, I, this, this is something that needs to be understood by everybody in healthcare. And you don't have to be someone who even sees kids. You're, you know, if, if you're somebody like a prosthodontist who makes dentures and does implants, well, guess what? You're treating the grandparents and great-grandparents of little kids who may have sleep and breathing disorders and the, the, the information may come from you. Grandpa, mm-hmm. I hear, you know, your, your daughter just had, uh, or your daughter has a two-year-old. Um, why don't you ask her if he snores? I mean, there's so many ways we can all share knowledge and information. And really, yeah. it's the general public that's going to cause policy change. And what I say is angry moms. Boy, you get mm-hmm. I've had so many moms when I'm consulting. And when I tell them, you know, they've already had an orthodontic consult. Oh, they said, wait for the adenoids to shrink and all this. And then I tell them what I think after I show them, you know, the the cone beam x-ray. And they'll go, I thought so. I thought there was something wrong here. I thought there's something that could be done. Maternal instinct is the most powerful force on planet Earth, I think. Uh, And, you know. I don't have many people disagree with me, especially husbands. And <laughs> literally, they'll stand back and say, <clears throat> as, as a mom, I'm obviously going to agree with that. So, and it's funny because one of the things I was going to ask you is, you know, how do we, 
how do we you know turn the ship and change the course of really medicine how it's working how dentists and pediatricians are being taught or in, in most cases not taught this information and how do we get it to parents and you already touched on part of it is advocates i mean we have to be our our kids advocates we have to trust our guts um we have to ask the questions we have to do the research we have to fight for our kids so how do we handle the other part of that equation as far as just medical practice we have the you know up and coming pediatricians and dentists how do we get them this information and and just change the the course we're on well it's it's uh I, I mean, I, I just feel it's the curriculum. It's, it's the healthcare professional curriculum, the, the medical school curriculum, the dental school curriculum, the dietetics curriculum, the speech and language pathology curriculum. All these, they all need to change. They all need to be influenced by this. And we can't work alone. I mean, everybody needs to be talking to each other. Uh, uh, the ob gynies they need to understand gestational apnea. I know more about gestational apnea than a lot of obstetric gynecologists. Why? Mm. Well, I mean, it's all over their literature, but they don't, you know, they don't read it. I don't read everything in the dental literature. There's, there's things there that I'm, you know, I discover every day, but I, I, it just, it really is. And not being judgmental. Like it's like, Oh, the orthodontist, they told me they want to pull teeth and all this. And I used to like, be judgmental. And it's like, wait a minute. I just learned this a minute ago. This hasn't right. been a career. It's, you know, it's been 12 years now, but I spent a long time not knowing anything about this. And now all of a sudden I'm going to judge other people who haven't been exposed. Right. So I, that, that's part of it is that we have to be understanding um, and raise public awareness. And, and that's, again, policy change. And, and really, mm -hmm. the, the, the curriculum, the educational curriculum, teaching modules, in integrating it into an existing base curriculum, slowly, gradually. Um, there's a couple of, I mean, this is, you know, the partnership that CAF has, you know, with Dell and in Austin at the University of Texas and the medical school and mm -hmm. the dental school and uh, Leah here. I, I mean, there's just so many good things, connections that, that can happen here. I, I'd love yeah. to be invited to to lecture to ENTs. And I have been at, you know, Loyola University Medical Center here where I went to dental school. But I got invited to do a grand rounds in the ENT department. It was in, invited by the head of ENT. It was great. So uh, that's the sort of thing that we have to cross disciplinary, you know, cross uh, curriculum activities and yeah. I, you know ut austin's going to be be a leader in this there's a there's another institution that's I think so. something similar yeah i agree so as as we wrap things up i always like to give our guests the opportunity to speak directly to parents and, and just you know leave them with something what is it that you would tell parents specifically around airway health and, you know, how to do the best for your child in this, you know, the environment that is life today. There, there's many things you can do to raise your child's, optimize your child's quality of life, um, which it, it also enhances family quality of life. I mean, what, what parent has mm -hmm. a good quality of life if their child doesn't? 
And one component, in addition, you know, to getting them, you know, square meals and shelter and and education and uh, physical activity, you know, all those wonderful things that, that parents can assure that their child get is the ability to breathe through their nose habitually while they're awake and especially while they're asleep. How do you do that? Well, you know what? You need to know that that should be done. How it's done and the nuances pretty soon will be as public knowledge as is eating fresh, minimally processed food and not, you know, living in front of a a computer screen and video games, but being outdoors and playing. That's sort of, you know, in the public domain now. But, But this sleep and breathing thing is early in life as possible. This is just not out there. Air is air. I still have some healthcare professionals. Well, you know, it's oxygen. I mean, what difference does it make if you get it through your mouth or your nose? Most, it's, it's getting less and less, but most people, they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, you should breathe through your nose. But I, you know, I just don't, they don't think really understand. it's ubiquitous in healthcare and in the public domain as well yet. And that's, that's really what we need. That's what we tell parents. Your, your child needs to be a nose breather immediately. <laughs> as quickly as possible. And we have yep. to find out why they're not, if they're not. First, find out if they're not. Maybe they already are, you know. But that's another thing you can feel good about. <clears throat> I love it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Kev. I really appreciate it. Oh, and thank you. Very skillful in your uh, questioning and interviewing. I, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Kevin Boyd, for sharing his medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave us a review or a comment about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.